Hi there, and thanks for listening to Batman v. Batuman, a monthly comics podcast with news, reviews, and a recurring segment in which I read and review a Marvel story as I try to get to know Marvel as well as I know DC. I'm Jahan Batuman, the second half of the name of this podcast. Let's get to it. Netflix made headlines when it purchased Millar World, a comic company founded by, and mostly as a publishing vessel for, Mark Millar. After decades of writing for 2000 AD, Marvel, and DC, Millar created Millar World and used it to self-publish and manage the creative rights for series like Kick-Ass, Wanted, Jupiter's Circle, Jupiter's Legacy, and so on. Warner Brothers owns DC, Disney owns Marvel, and now Netflix owns Millar World. And now, the first creative announcement since that purchase has been announced. Unlike what most folks, including myself, expected, Netflix isn't adapting one of Millar's works just yet. Instead, the announcement was for a new comic book series called The Magic Order, written by Millar and illustrated by, hopefully I'm pronouncing this right, Oliver Koipel. The Magic Order is going to be a dark fantasy book revolving around five magical families that sort of function as crime families, but unbeknownst to the world. The series will come out in a few months and is definitely an interesting move on Netflix's part. When Netflix bought Millar World, it was made clear that Millar would still be creating comics. And while the company would certainly keep publishing his books, I have to wonder, how much creative control will Netflix exercise over future comic books from the imprint? While Millar doesn't really write anything that would be too violent or inappropriate for Netflix, except for maybe Nemesis, they'll probably want to make sure that whatever he writes would be easy to adapt. Whether that means sitting in the room with him to discuss ideas or looking at his scripts after he submits them, I have to imagine that Netflix won't want him writing anything that would be too expensive or controversial to turn into a TV show or movie. Anyway, over my last few episodes, I've been reviewing titles from Alterna Comics, an independent publisher that is putting out books in newsprint. Bringing back newsprint is great in and of itself, but Alterna Comics is also putting out good books, and after enjoying Scrimshaw, The Wicked Righteous, and Mr. Crypt, I figured I'd review another series for this episode and chose Go West. Go West was written by Garrett Gunn with art by Saint Yak. It's three issues long and I got them on Comixology. Each issue costs less than two bucks, which is another reason I've been checking out Alterna Comics books. Alright, so Go West is set in a semi-dystopian America over a hundred years from now, where anti-government revolutionary groups declared independence and waged war against the federal government. After years of conflict and lots of bloodshed, the government forged an uneasy peace by signing a treaty that gave the revolutionaries all of the United States west of Arizona, with the Arizona-Nevada border serving as a demilitarized zone where outlaws and rebels were banned from crossing east. But some outlaws, being outlaws, still cross that border and raid towns and farms near the border. Forty years after that peace was settled, a group called the Savages goes east on a raid. Arthur Slade is a retired gunslinger who recently settled down, getting married and having a kid. That happy new life is torn away from him by the savages, who raid his farm. As Slade's quest for vengeance begins, he finds out more about why the savages attacked his family, and finds out that it wasn't a random attack. People from his past, in his fighting days, re-emerge, and while some are eager to help him, others might have been involved in the raid. So Slade goes on the warpath and seeks allies in his war on the savages. Go West grows from a simple revenge tale to a saga as twisted and bleak as the America it takes place in. The miniseries is a gritty and gratifying read for its short length and spartan storytelling. There are motorcycles instead of horses and modern firearms, but otherwise this looks and feels like a classic western. Kind of an escape from New York meets the proposition, but in a more brutal future. Garrett Gunn, aside from having a name that would fit right into the world of Go West, has a thoughtful and straightforward writing style that helps him deliver a lot of plot and action in just three issues. From the first couple of pages, Arthur Slade's boiling rage is palpable, 
and the more we learn about him and the people who crossed him, the grayer things become. This could have easily been a point A to point B western revenge story, but Gunn's world is too well realized for any kind of cop-out storytelling. That being said, there are some sections that feel a little bit light, where there is very little or no writing, but the visual storytelling usually compensates for those pages. And the art is really cool. Saint Yak uses shadows really well and draws everything that isn't in the dark with a nice mix of drabness and detail. Arthur Slade is drawn in a way that tells a story in and of itself. His body language, the tension of his muscles, and his facial expressions are all really well done. Physically and mentally scarred, Slade is a man well beyond nothing left to lose, and it shows. Saint Yak also does really great effects. At one point, Slade holds up a lighter and the flame appears to be burning the panel above it. Awesome. There isn't much of a color palette, and the writer and artist opted for a limited range of tan and sandy, deserty schemes, but whenever colors do appear beyond this default palette, they strongly pop. It's a cool effect throughout the comic, and it isn't overused, so the colors stand out nicely whenever they are used. The visual storytelling is pretty effective, especially during action sequences. Yak's panels during battles and shootouts are like a movie storyboard. There are even a couple of homages to Western cinema, both directly to specific films and to the genre as a whole. Be warned though, this is a really violent comic, even more so than Scrimshaw and the Wicked Righteous, which weren't exactly family-friendly alternate comics titles. So keep that in mind, but otherwise I recommend Go West to anyone who digs westerns or reinterpretations of the genre. So I've now reviewed four alternate comics series in my four most recent episodes. As long as I'm enjoying a new series by the publisher, I'll keep at it. Doesn't hurt that each issue costs less than two bucks. I'm not sure which one I'll check out next, but if I like it, you'll hear about it next month. I've been falling behind in my general comic reading lately, so I have a small pile to get through, but what I have read has been pretty good stuff. DC's Batwoman and Detective Comics have been teasing a dark timeline in which Tim Drake, one of the current Robins and my personal favorite Robin, caught a glimpse of his future thanks to the mysterious Mr. Oz. Mr. Oz, for those of you who haven't been following DC lately, is a mysterious and powerful figure who may or may not be responsible for some of the universal shifts that have occurred during and after DC's rebirth event. Uh, Mr. Oz's identity was revealed in Action Comics a couple of months ago, but I'll leave it out of this just in case anyone hasn't read it yet or hasn't heard who he is. Anyway, Mr. Oz kidnapped Tim Drake and had him in a weird suspended time prison uh, of some kind in which Tim Drake met his future self. Although they managed to escape, future Tim Drake has a secret and nasty vendetta against Batwoman. Both Detective Comics and Batwoman have featured some of this story, although Detective Comics is currently focusing on it. I really love stories outside of the main continuity or stories about alternate timelines uh, or horrible futures. So yeah, I'm digging detective comics lately more than I did during a couple of more mundane story arcs over the summer. As for Batwoman, Marguerite Bennett is doing some awesome things in that book. Batwoman is currently tangling with Dr. Jonathan Crane, aka the Scarecrow. The current story arc started out with Batwoman fighting Scarecrow gas-manipulated henchmen, then with her getting captured when it suddenly veered into a really awesome, trippy place in the most recent issue. Batwoman has been solid since the series started, but now it's getting weird, and I like it weird. I'm enjoying Batman lately, and the latest issue had Damian Wayne, Batman's son and another current Robin, staring down Superman and talking about how he'd use magic instead of kryptonite to take down the most powerful hero in the universe. Aside from how chillingly awesome it is to see a little kid threaten Superman like that, it totally continues the slew of DC Rebirth comics mentioning or featuring magic and reinforcing my conspiracy theory that magic is going to play a huge part in the DC Cinematic Universe soon, mostly to serve as a damper on Superman's powers and to keep the character from being too powerful and therefore uninteresting. In non-DC stuff, I've been enjoying Scales and Scoundrels and Spy Seal, both from Image Comics. 
Scales and Scoundrels is a fantasy adventure comic. It's a pretty cute affair, written by Sebastian Girner with art by Galad. Hopefully I'm pronouncing those names right. It has a lighthearted Dungeons and Dragonsy vibe, with a treasure hunter slash thief joining up with a traveling prince and his escort on an adventure for gold and glory. Three issues are out so far, and unlike some image comics, a lot has happened already. There's plenty of world building, conflict, chase scenes, and the protagonists are already trapped in a dungeon, so yeah, lots of stuff to keep you entertained in this series. Spy Seal is a little more mature, but still fun and family friendly, taking place in an anthropomorphic animal world, reminiscent of 70s spy movies. It's about a British seal named Malcolm, who inadvertently gets caught up in an international kerfuffle and is recruited by Her Majesty's government to help uncover the mystery behind a multinational criminal organization. There are also three issues of it out so far, but unlike Skills and Scoundrels, this is a miniseries, with the upcoming fourth issue set to wrap the story up. Spy Seal is written and drawn by Rich Tommaso, who has a really unique and exciting art style that reminds me of Tintin comics, but with more detail and attention to physics. If the miniseries sells a decent amount of copies, Tommaso said that he has future Spy Seal adventures in mind, so do him and yourself a favor by checking out Spy Seal. Alrighty, let's talk movies for a bit. I haven't seen Thor Ragnarok yet, and since Justice League comes out in less than a week, I figured I'd just see them both after I record this and then talk about them in my next episode. While one might say that a comic book podcast should try to review a movie as soon as possible, I do one of these a month, and frankly, you should be seeing comic book movies regardless of my thoughts. Thor Ragnarok was well-reviewed, which is nice considering that the first two entries are among the lesser Marvel Cinematic Universe films. But as you might suspect of a huge DC fan, I'm much more excited to see Justice League. The Justice League, through comics and the animated series from about a decade and a half ago, had a huge impact on my life. The show, in both incarnations as Justice League with the seven founding members, uh, with Hawkgirl instead of Aquaman, and Justice League Unlimited with the expanded roster and more self-contained stories, came out when I was in middle school. When the show first aired, my parents were getting divorced and I just moved to a new town and started a new school. I took great comfort during an unsettled time in an unfamiliar setting with the consistent awesomeness of Wonder Woman, Batman, Green Lantern, the John Stewart Green Lantern, which is because of the show why he's my favorite Green Lantern, uh, Hawkgirl, The Flash, Wally West Edition, Superman, and one of my all-time favorite comic book characters, John Jones, The Martian Manhunter. But my love for the Justice League existed before the TV show, which is partially why the series resonated with me as much as it did. A couple of years before the show came out, I was given a few copies of the Justice League of America comic book. It was being written by Grant Morrison, with some excellent fill-in issues by writers like Devin Grayson, Mark Wade, J.M. DeMatteis, and a recurring figure in this episode, Mark Millar. I loved that run on Justice League, and still try to collect the issues of it I don't have after all these years. Some of the stuff Grant Morrison wrote in this run is still important to the DC Universe. Tom King and Mitch Jarad's unsettling and fascinating Mr. Miracle miniseries has made great use of the phrase Darkseid is, which Morrison introduced during this JLA run. Although Morrison left the series after the 41st issue, it still held up. In fact, issue 42, written by Dan Curtis Johnson, is one of my favorite DC one-off story issues. It features the League being shrunken down to the size of bacteria and getting injected into a child's brain. Awesome. So yeah, due to luck, a generous person who gave me some random comic books, and a fantastic animated series, the Justice League has a special place in my heart. I take my favorite comics and the movies they inspire pretty seriously and approach them with great enthusiasm, but seeing Justice League when it comes out on the 17th is going to be a very special experience. Two decades ago, I needed the Justice League. Now, I just need the movie to be halfway decent so I don't have to cry into a microphone about it next month. 
As of this recording, there are no reviews for the movie yet, but I'm sure there will be plenty posted by the time you hear this. I'm gonna see the movie four or five times regardless of the reviews, but ah, oh, geez, I hope it's good. Anyway, so now, as always, I'll end this episode with a summary and review of a Marvel book as I seek to understand the Marvel Universe and to be less of a DC partisan. But before I dive into the summary and review, I want to reiterate that while yes, I'm going to spoil the hell out of this book, I'm also going to leave out some details, breeze through some complex bits, and not reveal everything that happens because while I am summarizing and reviewing this, I want you to go out and get the book if it sounds interesting to you, and then find new and exciting things while you read it instead of having every note and nuance spoiled by the summary. So yeah, keep that in mind, and let's get to it! For this episode, I wanted to make up for not seeing Thor Ragnarok yet, so I read Thor issues 337 to 343, published in 1983 and 1984. I read these specific issues because they are the first seven issues of Walter Simonson's run on the series as the writer and artist. Walt Simonson is probably the most significant contributor to the character since its early years, and is the name most associated with Thor comics by my Marvel-loving friends. His run on Thor started with issue 337, and went on until 382, although he didn't do the art for all of those issues. Back then, comics didn't really do the 3, 4, or 6 issue arcs that are common now, so the first 7 issues thing here is kind of arbitrary. There are multiple storylines that begin and end in these 7 issues, but I feel like summarizing and reviewing the entirety of Simonson's run on Thor would be worth a podcast of its own. And the 7th issue here had a less open-ended finale than the 6th, so 7 it was. Here we go. Beyond the known universe, a sun explodes. The molten remnants of that star are picked up by an enormous, shadowy, cosmic figure who slams the fiery matter onto a space anvil. In our very own, less high-concept science fiction corner of the universe, a guy named Dr. Donald Blake is in a Chicago park, walking with a cane. It turns out that Dr. Blake is actually the Norse god of thunder, Thor, son of Odin, and the cane is a magical one, which can turn him back into Thor from this far more typical-looking human form. As Thor strolls through the park, he ponders his godly duties and responsibilities, wishing he could truly live as a human being, even if just for one day. As he makes his way through the park, a couple of trench-coated goons sneak up on him, grab his cane, and throw him in the back of a car. Stuck in the form of Dr. Donald Blake, Thor is relatively helpless. Luckily, his kidnappers aren't as bad as they seem. Behind the wheel of the car that snatched him is Colonel Nick Fury, director of the Supreme Headquarters International Espionage Law Enforcement Division, which is what S.H.I.E.L.D. stood for in the 80s before 90s reboots and the 2000s Marvel Cinematic Universe changed the name up. Anyway, Fury and Thor know each other, and Fury apologizes for the unorthodox recruitment, but he needs Thor's help. He turns the car into a mini-jet, because sure, why not, and they fly off to the S.H.I.E.L.D. helicarrier headquarters in the sky. Thor taps his cane and turns back into Thor, his English immediately turning into ye old English, with all of its thous and thees and whatnot. On board the helicarrier, Thor and Fury get briefed on a developing situation by S.H.I.E.L.D. agent Sitwell. Sitwell reports that an experimental space probe operated by S.H.I.E.L.D. had ventured deep into space, and was sending back pictures when it came across what appeared to be an alien spacecraft. The probe sent back pictures of that spacecraft passing a sun and absorbing it, using the star for power. The alien spacecraft then noticed the probe and destroyed it. Fury doesn't have any options within S.H.I.E.L.D. to investigate, and he asks Thor to do so. The Norse god agrees, fearing for Earth and the star it revolves around. Thor, armed with his trusty and mighty hammer Mjolnir, that only he can wield, flies off into space. Meanwhile, in a desolate part of Asgard, 
the realm of the Norse gods that watches over our earthly realm, Midgard, Loki the trickster god is languishing in exile. He plots revenge against Odin and the other gods, but his mood lightens when he notices some warriors hunting a troll near his castle. Troll hunting is forbidden, but he invites Lorelei, the lady warrior who wins the hunt, up to his castle, intending to use her as part of his plot against Asgard. Swiftly traveling through space with the powers of his hammer, Thor comes across the alien spaceship. The ship's automated defense system fires at him, but Thor is barely affected and throws his hammer at a turret. The hammer returns to him after being thrown, and the hole it tore into the ship's hull gives Thor away into the vessel. He wanders around and spies a couple of crystal pods. Assuming them to be the power source of the ship, Thor approaches to smash them, but the ship's computer realizes the threat and opens the pods, revealing a cryogenically frozen inhabitant who immediately wakes up and grabs Thor. That frozen inhabitant turns out to be a massive green alien monster. Thor is disturbed by the alien's strength since he isn't used to being manhandled that easily. The alien is weirdly polite despite its aggression and introduces himself as Beta Ray Bill, which has to be a top 10 comic book name of all time. He accuses Thor of being one of the demons that have been pursuing him and attacks the God of Thunder again before Thor can explain his mission. They battle all over the ship, causing extensive damage. Unfortunately for our lovely little planet, the ship's computer calculates the nearest galaxy that can provide resources for it to self-repair is the Milky Way galaxy, and specifically that galaxy's third planet. During their combat, Thor drops his hammer. As they approach Earth, he turns into Dr. Donald Blake again. Apparently if he isn't holding his hammer and is near or on Earth, Thor immediately reverts into that form, and the hammer turns into a magic walking stick. Anyway, Beta Ray Bill quickly defeats Thor in Donald Blake's body, but the ship is in bad shape and crash lands on Earth. Beta Ray Bill, and yes I'm going to say his full name every time because it's awesome, isn't too worried, even though the ship informs him that it will take several days to repair itself and that several vehicles are approaching. Luckily for Earth, those vehicles are a S.H.I.E.L.D. rapid response team led by Nick Fury. Unluckily for Earth, Beta Ray Bill picks up the magic walking stick and slams it against some wreckage to pump himself up for battle but doing so activates its powers and turns Beta Ray Bill into the alien equivalent of a Norse god. He is now dressed like Thor and wielding Mjolnir, the only other being in the universe apparently capable of wielding the mighty hammer. Beta Ray Bill starts attacking and easily overpowering the shield response team, but before he can kill anyone or escape, Odin, ruler of Asgard and leader of the Norse gods, appears to summon his son Thor to their heavenly realm. Asgard is in peril and he needs Thor's help. Unfortunately for Thor and for Beta Ray Bill, Odin isn't paying too much attention in his summoning and accidentally grabs Beta Ray Bill instead of his son, since Beta Ray Bill is dressed like Thor and wielding his hammer. Deep in space, well beyond the galaxy that Thor found Beta Ray Bill, the shadowy galactic entity that grabbed the remnants of a son in the beginning of the story reappears, using an enormous forge and hammer to mold the star matter into something. Something likely very sinister. But for now we return to Earth and Dr. Donald Blake. Stuck in that form, Thor is devastated. He can't contact his father or the other gods without his hammer, and can't return to Asgard without it either. His wish to be human, even for a day, has suddenly come true. Meanwhile, up in Asgard, Beta Ray Bill is about as upset to be there as Thor is to be stuck on Earth. Asgardian warriors are stunned to see the alien dressed up as Thor, but Beta Ray Bill beats them all up until Odin arrives to demand an explanation. Beta Ray Bill is also seeking an explanation, assuming that Odin, Thor, and the other Asgardians are the enemies of his people who destroyed his planet and forced him to escape into space. 
He throws Thor's hammer at Odin, who manages to grab it and defuse the situation. Beta Ray Bill starts to realize that the Asgardians might not be his enemies, and Odin calls for a magic crystal he can use to look upon Earth. He sees his son, and brings him back to Asgard, giving Thor the hammer and returning the God of Thunder to his rightful form. Beta Ray Bill and Thor apologize to each other and join Odin to discuss their respective stories and try to find out how Beta Ray Bill was able to wield Thor's hammer. The Lady Sif, an Asgardian warrior and Thor's lover, is happy to hear of his return, but then comes across him in a garden making out with Lorelei, the hunter who won the Forbidden Troll Hunt earlier. Sif is outraged to discover them and decks Thor with a solid blow. She storms off, disowning Thor and their relationship. Thor is quite amused, and after Sif is gone, shapeshifts back into Loki, the trickster god. The real Thor is still with Odin and Beta Ray Bill, listening to the alien story. Beta Ray Bill was part of a technologically advanced species, whose planet faced destruction when the core of their galaxy exploded. Beta Ray Bill was chosen to lead the exodus of his people, and was bioengineered into his current body by scientists to make him a more formidable warrior and capable of protecting his species from any threat. But as thousands of his kind jetted into the stars, they were attacked by what Beta Ray Bill calls demons, mysterious aliens that attacked the survivors in their ships. Beta Ray Bill assumed that Thor was one of those demons who had caught up to his ship, hence his attack. But the alien isn't satisfied with his own safety, and wants to use Thor's hammer to attack the demons and ensure his people's safety. Thor is appalled to hear this demand, but Odin calms the two warriors down. He points out a loophole that, while the hammer had up to that point only been wielded by himself and his son, there is an inscription on the hammer. The inscription reads, Whosoever holds this hammer, if he be worthy, shall possess the power of Thor. It's kind of a weird loophole, but technically Beta Ray Bill has met that requirement. Odin never expected anyone to prove themselves worthy, but here they are. Since Beta Ray Bill has proven himself worthy, Odin determines that the only fair way to decide ownership of the hammer is to hold a trial by combat. Beta Ray Bill and Thor agree to fight each other again, this time without the hammer involved. Just before the fight begins, Odin reveals the stakes. Winner gets the hammer, loser gets a fancy funeral pyre. He teleports them to Skartheim, a part of Asgard that is underground and full of flowing lava. Now the combat begins. Beta Ray Bill and Thor exchange blows. Evenly matched and unarmed, they both do a lot of damage, but they're stuck in a stalemate. They batter each other from the cliffs above the lava onto a chunk of obsidian floating in the burning rivers below. Eventually, Thor is struck unconscious, and Beta Ray Bill can barely move. He considers himself the victor, but can't bring himself to actually kill Thor and thus end the combat. The alien can't even bring himself to let Thor perish in the lava, and saves him by carrying him back to solid land. Odin summons them back from Skartime. Beta Ray Bill declares victory and claims Mjolnir, then passes out on top of Thor. Perplexed and a little disappointed, Odin orders his vassals to take both combatants to the House of Healing, which is what we should call hospitals from now on. Once they've both escaped the grip of death, Odin goes to visit them. Thor is ashamed to be alive and wishes to renounce his godhood in penance for being defeated in what was supposed to be a battle to the death. Beta Ray Bill, meanwhile, is magnanimous in victory. He technically won the hammer and therefore the means to rescuing his people from the demons pursuing them, yet the alien feels no joy and asks Odin if there is any way the Asgardians can help his people without relinquishing Mjolnir. Odin is moved by Beta Ray Bill's nobility, and decides to find him a gift that will aid his people. The ruler of Asgard departs his palace and seeks out the dwarves of the realm, who have among their number the finest blacksmiths in Asgard. The dwarves agree to help Odin, and forge a weapon that rivals Mjolnir in power to give to Beta Ray Bill. 
but there is a catch. The dwarves aren't eager to help, so they offer Odin a bet. They demand that a female god fight a dwarf champion. If she defeats the dwarf, their blacksmiths will forge a weapon. If the dwarf wins, the female god will be forced to live among them. It's a creepy deal, but Odin agrees, and the Lady Sif volunteers to go and fight on behalf of Odin, Thor, and Beta Ray Bill. Although she is still quite upset with what she thinks Thor was doing in the garden with Lorelei, Sif rides off to do battle. She's ambushed by the dwarf champion Throg in a mountain pass, but Sif is too skilled a warrior to perish in an ambush. She recovers and battles Throg. The dwarf is stronger than her, but Sif is quicker and smarter. She uses Throg's momentum and anger against him and subdues the hulking dwarf. After knocking him out, Sif is surrounded by many dwarves who, rather than bemoan their champion's loss, applaud Sif for defeating him. The dwarves who challenged Odin to the bet actually wanted an Asgardian goddess to defeat Throg, who was apparently a big bully and disliked by most of his people. They assumed that if he was defeated by a woman, he'd be so embarrassed that he would leave the other dwarves alone. So after that, Sif returns to Asgard with the praise of the dwarves, and a promise that they will deliver a mighty weapon to Beta Ray Bill. She passes on the good news to the alien, and they share a tender moment before Beta Ray Bill regretfully informs her that he has no love left to give, and cannot seek happiness until his people are safe. Sif understands, and pities the lonely alien who has sacrificed his body and his peace of mind for the cause of his species' survival. And that cause is bolstered as the dwarves finish forging him a weapon, an enchanted hammer called Stormbreaker, nearly as powerful as Mjolnir. Beta Ray Bill humbly accepts the hammer from Odin and the dwarves, vowing to save his people. As he prepares to depart Asgard and return to the fleet of survivors, Beta Ray Bill is joined by Thor and Sif, who wish to aid their new friend in his noble endeavor. The Lady Sif is still upset with Thor, though they haven't addressed what happened, and they're both unaware of Loki's trickery. But she admires Beta Ray Bill, and wishes to add her blade to their hammers against the demons. They ride a cosmic chariot into space to find Beta Ray Bill's people. The aliens in the fleet are all locked up in cryostasis pods like Beta Ray Bill was. So the Asgardians and their alien friends are relieved to find the fleet, but then notice that the demons have caught up and are attacking the last ship in the formation. The demons actually resemble demons from hell. They're like red space lizards about the size of elephants. Our heroes arrive too late to save that last ship, but wade into battle, all three of them wielding Asgardian weapons against the monsters. After dispatching a wave of space demons, Lady Sif heads off to distract the Horde, while Thor and Beta Ray Bill seek out the source of the demons. Near Beta Ray Bill's home galaxy, they find a portal spewing out the demons. Despite their combined strength and the magic of enchanted weaponry, they're unable to breach the portal. They decide to try destroying it instead fighting their way through demons to stand on opposite sides of the mysterious portal. At the same time, they throw their dwarven hammers at the portal. The hammers breach the energy field and collide, causing a massive explosion. Back at the fleet attacked by demons, Lady Sif is preparing for a final stand against a massive wave of the monsters. But before they reach her, they start disappearing. Apparently, destroying the portal not only stopped the onslaught of demons, it had some power over the ones that had already passed through. Victorious, Beta Ray Bill, Lady Sif and Thor return to a hero's welcome in Asgard, but even though they celebrate a great victory, the alien already yearns to return to his people. As a bioengineered champion of his species, Beta Ray Bill has an unwavering responsibility to lead them towards a new home. Odin calls his son and the alien before him. Odin calls his son and the alien before him. 
In honor of their success, and in the hope that Beta Ray Bill's people will be safe, Odin grants them both a gift. Beta Ray Bill's hammer is bestowed with the same power that Thor's hammer has on Earth, the ability to change the wielder's shape into a more normal form. In Beta Ray Bill's case, this means that he can return to his original body and then go back to the powerful form his people created for him if need be. This enchantment can only exist in one weapon, which means that Odin's gift to his son is that Thor can remain Thor on Midgard as he is in Asgard, free from the body of Donald Blake. Beta Ray Bill thanks Odin and prepares to leave, but Lady Sif stops him before he can go. She has decided to join him and use her skills in combat to protect and aid the aliens as they continue their exodus throughout the universe. Thor is upset, but understands her desire to be a champion of Beta Ray Bill's people. The aliens are safe and Asgard is secure despite Loki's developing machinations, but Earth is suddenly in danger, as a tanker off the coast of Cape Cod is suddenly attacked by a gargantuan sea monster, which bellows out that it has returned to seek revenge upon Odin and Thor. Thor returns to Earth, happy to have his body back, but no longer capable of fitting in among the mortals. Since he needs something to do and can't exactly blend in, Thor visits the Avengers for a secret mission that is so secret, the panels are literally blank, and Simonson inserts a note that we will have to wait for the next issue of the Avengers to find out what it was. Interesting move, Walt. Interesting move. Anyway, while Thor is off doing top-secret blank panel stuff, Lorelai appears on Earth, having joined Loki in New York as part of his plans against Asgard and Thor. Lorelai gets off at a subway stop in the city and is immediately accosted by street toughs who get the full force of an Asgardian warrior's rage. She then proceeds to walk down an old subway tunnel to a dank, abandoned corner of the city. There, she finds the creature that erupted from the sea and attacked the ship in Cape Cod. The creature is the dragon Fafnir of Norse mythology. Fafnir was the son of a dwarf king who had been cursed and turned into a dragon. In the comics, Fafnir appears to have been exiled from Asgard by Odin after being defeated by Thor. The dragon doesn't trust Lorelei and delves into her mind with some sort of hypnotic, psychic power to see if she really wants its help against Thor or if she has some ulterior motives. A couple of weeks later, Thor visits S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters to find Nick Fury and discuss his living and employment situations. Since Thor can't pass as Donald Blake anymore and doesn't work with the Avengers full-time, he needs a government ID, an apartment, and a disguise. Despite Thor being the first superhero to ever ask the government for help with a disguise, Nick Fury agrees to help and outfits Thor with a t-shirt and jeans. To complete the look and make a nice little Superman reference, which by the way is followed by an even more amazing Superman reference, the disguise involves a pair of glasses. Now decked out like an incredibly muscular civilian, Thor is ready to live amongst New Yorkers. Back in Asgard, Odin is still troubled by the demons that invaded Beta Ray Bill's home and decides to send his all-seeing ravens to investigate. Odin is suspicious that the threat of demons and whatever sent them still exists, and may return to attack Asgard or Midgard. Meanwhile, on Midgard, Thor reports for duty at a construction site where Nick Fury found him a job, using Sigurd Jarlsson as a fake name. Almost immediately after arriving, there's an accident on the site and a woman is in danger of falling to her death. Thor, careful not to reveal his powers, rescues her, but it turns out to be a trap laid by Fafnir the dragon. No longer concerned about keeping his identity secret, Thor tries to get to his hammer and engage the dragon in battle once again. But far beyond Earth, a threat more powerful than Fafnir appears, as the mysterious galactic shadow figure continues forging the star metal into a massive sword. As it hammers the blade, it calls out to summon a dark elf from the darkest realms of the universe to seek out the second son of Odin. 
Although the Dark Elf is not yet seen, it responds to the summons, and a new threat is born. But Thor is still dealing with Fafnir on Earth. He manages to get his hammer and survive a crushing blow from the dragon. As Fafnir begins to declare victory, Thor emerges in his true form, ready to defeat this foe once again. They exchange blows and insults, Fafnir vowing revenge for his exile, and Thor angrily justifying it after their past encounter. Just when Thor manages to get the upper hand, Fafnir disappears in a flash of light, vowing to return again and kill the God of Thunder. Although he's technically victorious, Thor is despondent about the destruction they caused in battle, and also the fact that he might have just lost his construction job. But his boss is actually overjoyed that no one was killed. He also didn't notice Sigurd Jarlson turn into Thor and then back into Sigurd, so as far as he knows, Sigurd Jarlson saved that lady from falling to her death, before Thor swooped in out of nowhere and saved the day. So Thor's employment is safe, and considering the state of the construction site, he's going to have plenty of work to do. Meanwhile, the lady he saved is unconscious, and Thor is quite smitten with her as he carries her to an ambulance, not realizing that she's actually Lorelei, brainwashed by Fafnir to be a damsel in distress. Odin, up in Asgard, is unaware of Fafnir's return. He feels troubled and is unsure why, but his attention is on Asgard and awaiting news from his ravens. Thor, meanwhile, sends Lorelei off in an ambulance, still not realizing who she is as she asks to see him again to thank him for rescuing her. In disguise as Sigurd Jarlson, he hears a distant voice calling his true name, and finds a dark alley to change back into Thor. He flies off to find the voice. Deep in space, beyond our known universe, the shadowy cosmic figure finally finishes forging the Star Sword. As it completes the weapon, Odin's all-seeing ravens reach him, having found the likely source of the demons that attacked Beta Ray Bill's people. The mysterious being attacks the ravens, revealing himself to be a demon of sorts himself, although far larger and more powerful than the ones he sent through the portal Thor and Beta Ray Bill destroyed earlier. Thor is blissfully unaware of these developments and flies to the source of the distant summons, which turn out to be in Antarctica. Inside of a volcanic rim, surrounded by snow and ice, Thor is stunned to find a green, lush mini-climate, teeming with life. As he wanders around, he's even more surprised to find a village, resembling the kind of village ancient Vikings would have built. Although he can't find anyone in the village, the place doesn't seem to be fully abandoned. He searches a nearby cemetery and spots a weird-looking cave with runes and carvings in the entrance. In stupidly brave fashion, Thor heads inside and is ambushed by spears and stones. He dives for cover and reassesses his plan. Spotting a gap, he charges past the projectiles, but not to safety, as the cave is full of traps and obstacles. Thor overcomes each of these with speed or strength until he reaches the heart of the cave, which is defended by a masked Viking warrior. The Viking attacks him, but is no match for the God of Thunder. Thor stands over his foe and removes the mask to discover an old man in the armor. The elderly fellow, named Eilif, explains that his people were the survivors of a failed Viking invasion of England. They sailed for a long time until they found safety within the volcano and founded a village. Over time, their numbers dwindled until the old man, last of his people, summoned Thor to battle him and, in defeat, be killed and sent to Valhalla, the hall of dead warriors in Asgard. Thor is merciful but frustrated that he was summoned for an old man's deceitful purposes. Eilif begs forgiveness and explains that the only way for him to enter Valhalla was to die in battle. Thor can understand the man's goals, but not his means. And while the God of Thunder was busy in Antarctica, Fafnir returned and is attacking New York, demanding that Thor come and face him. Also in New York, Lorelei has recovered from the dragon's brainwashing and resumes plotting against Thor, 
mixing a poisonous potion to trick the god into drinking when he returns as Sigurd Jarlson to meet her later. Thor realizes that Fafnir has returned, and decides to grant Ilef's wish in another way, by having him join Thor in battle against Fafnir and try to enter Valhalla in that manner. Weird to tell an old guy to go on a suicide mission, but I guess it's what Ilef wanted. So they ride off. Fafnir is ravaging New York City, but Thor arrives with the old man just in time to prevent any loss of life. They engage the dragon, and the battle is on. Thor has trouble inflicting damage, as Fafnir appears to be somewhat invulnerable to the hammer Mjolnir. Even his mightiest blows with the hammer barely hurt the dragon. Thor is almost on the ropes when Ilef sacrifices himself by diving into Fafnir with his spear. The spear manages to break through the dragon's scales, and while Fafnir is distracted by the wound, Thor strikes the same spot with all of his might. It works! The dragon is slain and falls to the ground. Thor isn't very happy though, as the cost of victory was high. The city is in ruins and the old man is dead. But by sacrificing himself to slay the dragon, Ilef has earned a place in Valhalla. The Valkyries of Asgard arrive to take him to the Hall of Warriors, and Thor watches them go in a flash of light. The God of Thunder has won the day, but there is still much danger to face in Asgard and Midgard. Loki is still plotting to take Odin's place as ruler, the mysterious space demon has completed his sword and summoned other monsters to attack Asgard, Lorelei is awaiting Thor to poison him, and some of the gods of Asgard are scattered and unprepared to meet any of these threats. Indeed, Thor's adventures aren't over and have barely begun, but this summary is over as the first seven issues of Walter Simonson's Thor have come to an end. And what adventures they were! From Chicago to space to Asgard to New York to Antarctica and to space and Asgard again, these seven issues get a lot of stuff done. These are the only Thor comics I've ever read, so I can't really compare them to past or future issues, but I really enjoyed the start to one of the more iconic runs of a series in Marvel history. Chris Claremont wrote hundreds of X-Men comics, and while Walt Simonson only wrote about 50 Thor issues, I can see why he's associated with this character like Claremont is with the X-Men. Considering that this was the beginning of his take on the character, Simonson makes a lot of bold moves. Although this wasn't the first time he had drawn Thor, having been the artist on the series for a bit in the 70s, this was his first time writing it, and also one of his first major writing assignments. But despite his lack of major writing experience, Simonson dove right into Thor, introducing an alien who could wield his hammer, demons that were being sent from the unknown corners of space, and telling side stories that were much more interesting than anything I would have guessed to expect from a Thor comic, since my experience of the character comes from the two Thor movies I've seen. But Simonson writes this with the confidence of a guy who's been doing it for years. These first seven issues were more interesting thematically than I expected from a comic about a non-comic mythological figure. I expected bombastic combat and shouting, and Thor being unshakable in his thorness, but instead, from the title character and others, we get post-traumatic stress, the struggle to fit in, genocide, sacrifice of self for the greater good, problems in familial and romantic relationships, self-doubt, forgiveness, manipulation, rejection, uh, entropy, trust issues, inadequacy, and more. This particular summary and review left out more story and subplots than any of the other episodes I've done so far. These seven issues really packed a lot in, and I was planning to do six, but I barely managed to stop myself at seven, because I wanted to end things on less of an intense cliffhanger than the sixth issue. There were some funny moments throughout, but the story wasn't too dramatic as to necessitate them. There were heavy moments, but the story didn't force levity to lift the mood. The tonal balance was excellent throughout, and none of the seven issues felt like filler despite the multitude of events that were set up and resolved. Also, the Superman reference that Simonson made during the pages where Nick Fury gave Thor a disguise was earnest and fantastic. 
As a DC fan, I might be biased, but that was one of the funniest parts of these issues. The plot jumps around a bit, focusing on Thor and Beta Ray Bill, the mysterious galactic figure, various Asgardian gods and their plots or their tellings of Norse mythology, and even aliens throughout these seven issues. It sounds overwhelming, and these shifts occur several times per issue, but Simonson juggled all the viewpoints well. From a non-comic perspective, I liked reading this for the mythology. Walt Simonson uses these issues to retell or reinterpret some Norse mythology. For example, Fafnir the dragon in Norse mythology is slain by a hero named Sigurd. When he attacks Thor in the penultimate issue of this review, Thor's civilian identity is Sigurd Jarlson. One of the subplots that I didn't have in this summary involved the Asgardian god Baldur the Poet. He's one of my favorite characters in Norse mythology, and Simonson has a subplot about him and his past that runs through a few issues. It was pretty cool to see that in comic form. My only criticism of the writing comes from the point of view of a summarizer, rather than anything I actually disliked about the writing. Since each issue jumped around a lot to different characters, settings, and points of view, it was difficult to summarize, and I had to either mention things later than they actually occurred, or leave them out if they went unresolved in these seven issues. The jumps to these different parts of the story were also usually very brief and not self-explanatory, so summarizing them as they are would mean I'd be saying meanwhile and talking about something different every two minutes. I enjoyed reading all of these issues, but summarizing them was a little less enjoyable. Anyway, on to the artwork. Since the same guy was responsible for the writing, I'll again applaud Walt Simonson for the penciling. A lot of the story takes place in Asgard and outer space, and both settings are rendered beautifully. Bifrost, the rainbow bridge, draws the eye every time it appears in the story. Simonson also draws with, and I'm using this term because I don't know what the proper artistic term would be if there is one, uh, but he draws with filters on flashbacks or storytelling scenes. It's an interesting effect and not something I've seen much of in other comics. The characters are rendered well with slightly exaggerated and stylized physiques, but no one looks ridiculous except, I guess, Thor when he's wearing a t-shirt, jeans, and glasses. But that was ridiculous in a good way. Beta Ray Bill looked really cool, and I appreciate that we never really got to see what his species looked like until a few issues after his introduction, when Odin gives him the gift of being able to shift back to his natural form. There were a couple of panels with some questionable and interesting physics, but that's just comic book logic as far as I'm concerned. I'll tweet an example of what I mean so you can see. It's pretty fun stuff. I also enjoyed the art for the villains of these issues. The mysterious shadowy space demon was very ominously drawn, with a cool balance of light and dark. Fafnir the dragon looked intimidating as he burst out of the sea and later rampaged around New York. Simonson isn't a hyper-detailed artist, but a lot of the panels look like they took a long time to draw, with nice little touches in the backgrounds and carefully drawn settings. The panel when Thor sees the Viking village in the volcano for the first time was beautiful. Scartime, the underground lava part of Asgard where Beta Ray Bill and Thor fought also looked really cool. So yeah, this was a fun and busy read. Simonson masterfully weaves multiple stories throughout these issues. There are B, C, and D subplots that made me want to keep reading beyond these seven. And I will, so I'll let you know, dear listener, if I come across any particularly awesome story arcs in the rest of Simonson's Thor run. Alright, that does it for this episode of Batman v. Batuman. If you have any questions, comments, criticisms, or suggestions for a future Marvel summary and review, let me know on Twitter at BVBpodcast. If you like the music, you can check out more like it at seedmole.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening. See you next month. I am pretentious. I am always right. I am Batuman. <laughs>